Amen. God bless you guys. Good morning. Wasn't that worship awesome? Hey, uh, before I hop in, um, there's something special coming up November 1st, and uh, you might not be aware of this. I actually didn't know about it. It is uh, an international day of prayer for the persecuted church across the globe. I'm not going to go into a diatribe about what real persecution looks like against sort of what we call persecution here. Um, there is no international day for the inconvenienced church in America. All right, so we direct our prayers to those who are experiencing actual um, and life-threatening persecution across the globe. And uh, someone in our church, uh, Joanne Birdsong, if you've been here anytime, you know who Joanne is. She's a wonderful lady who has a deep, deep passion and heart for this. And she wanted to just lead a prayer group at her home. Now, she can only really uh, facilitate about 15 people. So if this is a passion of yours, I know she would love for you to join them. She's going to actually serve lunch. It's going to be uh, November 1st, next, uh, not next Sunday, but uh, Sunday after, uh, 1230 lunch. Uh, you'll be able to start signing up this week. But if you want to find out more about that, uh, Joanne's going to be standing at the Connection kiosk right after service. And go find out about that. And um, it's just going to be one hour long. It's going to be a guided prayer time. You're going to be praying about specific things. Really wonderful time uh, for us in the West to be able to pray for those across the globe who are being persecuted. Amen? So um, I am, for my part, finishing up uh, my part of the conversation about uh, missing the heart and mind of God as it relates to grace and as it relates to sin. And what it looks like to live in the freedom of being a follower of Christ. Pastor Dan's going to uh, wrap up our message series. Uh, this I'll be here, but uh, um, I'm going to enjoy sitting and just listening to some uh, good teaching on this. Um, but today I wanted to finish up my part of the conversation with uh, what it looks like for us to walk in grace. And uh, that really has a specific meaning to me. So when we paused last week, uh, hopefully the message you got, hopefully the, what you took away um, <clears throat> was what I meant to communicate, which was you can contribute nothing to grace. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. Uh, you. You can't contribute righteousness and you can't detract with your unrighteousness. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, the only involvement you have is the willingness to believe that. Um, but beyond that, you contribute nothing. And if you tried to contribute something to it, you would then invalidate, that's what scripture says, you would invalidate what uh, grace actually is. So this is where our minds kind of starts like uh, turning and smoke comes out of our ears and our eyes roll back in our head because we have, if you've been around church any length of time, you've probably been convinced on some level that you do. People won't phrase it that way because they know they can't biblically, but that you do do something for your salvation. That it can't possibly be true that God does it all and we do nothing. So here's the paradox. Like anything really meaningful in the Bible, there's a paradox involved. And if you don't know what a paradox is, the true definition is it means something that's implausible or possibly impossible that when it's investigated and you kind of um, um, suss it out, 
that uh, it, you find out that it's actually true. So it's a truth that seems uh, incapable of being true. I'll give you an example, the Trinity, or it's three persons that constitute one God. That doesn't make any sense because 100% plus 100% plus 100% can't equal 100%. But that's how it works in the Trinity. That's a paradox, right? So here's the paradox um, for us. Um, you can't contribute anything to your salvation, but if you don't, you're not saved. You don't have to stop lying in order to be a follower of Christ, in order to be saved, but how could you continue a lifestyle of deceit if you were saved? You don't have to love people. It's not a requirement of salvation to love people like God loves them, but how could you be loved, genuinely loved, transformed by the love of God, and not love people the way God loves them. You see the paradox that it isn't required, but if you're not transformed by it, then you're not it. So if you thought that you were going to get to kind of walk away from this conversation about grace and go, sweet, there's literally nothing wrong with anything I do. That's really not what the message was all along. Listen, um, this is not in your notes, by the way, but 1 Corinthians 5, 17, very familiar passage. It says, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. He's not the same anymore. A new life has begun. So when you become a Christian, there is a transformation where the way you used to do things necessarily stops. Or it necessarily begins to stop. Now, we have this fancy word in Christianity, and we talk about... Well, there's salvation, and then there's sanctification, and you have to be sanctified, and you have to, that means you get holier and holier by doing better and better things, and it's kind of our way of setting up the new law, right? Um, we go, well, you're not really a Christian, but what they're trying to say is unless you follow the laws of Christianity, the rules of Christianity, then you're not a Christian. I'm telling you, that's not how it works, because rules don't make you saved. But if you're not doing what Jesus says to do, then you're not saved because if you were saved, you would do what Jesus said to do. Right? Okay. One of the most transformational things that's going to happen in your life is a result of walking in grace. And we're going to, we're going to sort of describe what that looks like is the way we respond to other people. So when you have received the transformational grace of Christ in your life and he has erased from you the guilt the condemnation, the shame, and the penalty of sin. That's what grace does. It's undeserved, it's free, and it's complete. In your life, you had to do nothing for it. It will, here's how it helps you become a new person. So grab your notes. I'm going to try to work really quick through just the first part of the conversation, even though my notes don't seem to indicate that at all. So walking in grace means this. Number one, rejecting the pride and judgment that blind you. So I don't think there's anyone in here, honestly, who's, who would say, um, yeah, I'm, I'm perfect. I don't think there's anything I need to improve or correct. Um, or be able to say it with a straight face. How about that? And I think actually most of us would 
even be willing to talk about some of our shortcomings. Well, yeah, I mean, um, and, and we could kind of enumerate some of the things that make us not perfect. Um, we might even talk about ways in which we're significantly broken. We would only do that with a few people, right? We don't offer up that. But within every one of us is something, and I do believe it exists in every one of us on some level. It's just some people manage it better and control it better and, and suppress it better and fight it better. But there is a toxin that flows through us, and that toxin um, poisons the way we see people. When we see ourselves, we see ourselves through a generous and forgiving lens that kind of sees our shortcomings as sort of like, you know, endearing little annoyances and they're kind of understandable sins and everybody kind of gets it and nobody's really that bothered by mine and mine's not that bad. And then when we look at others, we seem to have this unbelievably microscopic ability to hone in on their shortcomings as being far more sinister, far more repetitious, far more frequent, far more devious, far more perverted, far more mean-spirited, far more evil and nasty. And we seem to assign to them that their sin is different than our sin. And let me tell you what that toxic is. It's pride. And pride is the most dangerous of all sins because pride veils itself. Pride is the master of disguises. It walks around and pretends to be righteousness. Pride allows us under the veil of righteousness to judge others in the name of calling the church back to holiness before God and calling the, the, the world away from their evil desires and their indulgent and, and their Sodom and Gomorrah-like behavior. Jesus actually attacks that kind of pseudo-righteousness. Matthew 7, 3 through 5, he says, Why is it that you're so good at seeing the dust in your brother's or sister's eye, but you can't see what's in your own eye? Don't ignore the wooden plank in your eye while criticizing the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyelashes. That type of criticism and judgment is a sham. It's fake. You're, you're not even being righteous. Remove the plank from your own eye, and then perhaps you will be able to see clearly, perhaps you will be able to see clearly how to flush, uh, help a brother flush out the sawdust in his own eye. Jesus couldn't stand the idea that these Pharisees were so pious, were so self-righteous, and they were so in tune with everyone else's sin that they were blind because of their own pride to their own sin, which was far worse. And the antidote to pride is no secret. You already know what it is. It's humility. I want to show you what humility produces in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. I love this. Don't let, this is Paul, remember, who's trying to teach grace to Jews who only knew law. Don't let selfishness and pride, uh, prideful agendas take over. Don't let that control your thinking or the way you treat people. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to others. Humility produces the behavior of loving people. And if you want a great lesson on loving people, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And don't think about the last wedding you were at. It's not a romance chapter. It's about how followers of Christ should love each other. Get beyond yourselves and protecting your own interests, making you look good, making you feel self-righteous, making you feel safe. 
Get beyond your own self-interest and be sincere and be secure in your neighbor's interest first. In other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus the anointed. He was saying, this is how Jesus treated us. He put our needs before his own. Live with his attitude in your hearts. Remember that though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God. It means he set aside his divine nature and he poured himself out to fill a vessel brand new. And here's the vessel. He left the vessel of being God and became man, a servant form, a servant in form and a man indeed, the very likeness of humanity. He humbled himself to the point of being obedient to death, a merciless death on the cross. Humility means you'll go to any length to be able to see yourself in the eyes of grace. Humility is recognizing how deeply grace has impacted you and how undeserving we all are of grace. And humility says, how could I possibly see people the way I've been seeing them even though I've been transformed by grace? Which leads us to number two. And walking in grace means allowing others to sin differently than you. Allowing others to see, sin differently than you. So as long as the church has been in existence, and I'll just say this, in all fairness to the church, as long as the world's been in existence. We have been putting each other in categories. It's easy for us. We do it by race, by gender, by size, by age. It helps us. It helps us to be able to consider what we think about somebody based on some very um, limited criteria. And as long as God's been interacting with humanity, he's been telling us, I don't judge people the same way you do. You use a lot of categories that can be seen on the outside, and I don't use any of those. Paul, when he was planting these churches, uh, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, uh, the Colossian church, um, he was pushing back immediately on the way that the church had been trying to do the same thing. To continue, even though they were new followers of Christ, to continue using the same arbitrary made-up rules to continue judging people. And the reason we do that is because it makes us feel safer that if I'm not doing that sin, and I'm going to tell you, this, this is hard for me to say because you could misuse this. The Old Testament is a valuable body of scripture, but not for the Christian of today to model their life after Old Testament scripture. It was a completely different system. It wasn't written to you or to me. And we often go there because we love the clobber scriptures that we can pull from the Old Testament. <laughs> We're really weird though about avoiding things like that we should have our heads covered. And men, you should have hair that goes uncut on your temples. And you shouldn't weave two different fabrics together. Shouldn't be eating shellfish, by the way, or pork. Women, you need to be outside the community while you're having your period. Um, if you disrespect a parent, you should be stoned to death. A few things we've set aside. But man, if it's something we need to beat somebody up with, we are like, Leviticus 2711 said... And I'm like, oh, you missed all the other scriptures. And boy, you sure got that one right. 
So we love to create a new system of law. But here's how Paul addresses that to the Colossian church. This one says, Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Remember, I said grace is about following the light, not running from darkness. Right? right? So put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn uh, to know your creator and become like him. That's the journey of grace. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Ooh, boo Gentiles because they weren't chosen. They weren't of the chosen, right? God, God did choose the Jews first and then allowed Gentiles to be grafted in. Doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. This was a debate in the church that even as a Christian, you had to be circumcised. And circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. He was literally going through the, the, every spectrum and he said, even if you practice barbarian behaviors, this was a class of people, barbarian behaviors, Scythians and barbarians, they were foul, they were murderous, they were violent, they were terrible, they had no laws, they were complete chaos and pandemonium. And he says, it does not matter. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Anyone who is saved by grace and put their faith in Christ, he lives in us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. He says it doesn't matter if you're male, female, if you're uh, big, small, if you're Asian, if you're white, if you're Hispanic, if you are any of the things that we are also using, if you're Democrat or Republican, I want you to listen. Any category that you think disqualifies somebody from Christianity is one that you made up. Because there is no scripture disqualification for any group of people. You have to hear that and you have to believe it. Because if scripture is true, then what I said was true. There is no category of people that you can disqualify from Christianity. If you do, you're making that up. Now you say, well, there's an unforgivable sin. I'm going to tell you something. If you're sitting here, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Theologians have been debating about it for centuries, millennia. They've been debating about what the true unforgivable sin is. And here, I'm going to tell you, all of them can stop, put their study notes down. Here it is. It is the knowing the grace of Christ and fully rejecting it. It's not that God can't forgive it. It's that he can't forgive someone who doesn't allow forgiveness to be in their life. It is the, I remove myself from receiving. I cut myself off. I reject in fullness who Jesus is. You defile and you, 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 you make pedestrian the holy things of God that you've known. And I just, I, I'm sure there are those people who have done that. But can I tell you the Christians struggling in their daily life to follow the light and be in grace, those aren't the people that have committed a sin that cannot be forgiven. So whatever category we use, whatever name we put on people inside or outside the church, Jesus is all that matters. And I think it's unbelievably ignorant and arrogant. I saw um, a discussion online and it was this pastor poorly answering the question, can a Democrat be a Christian? Well, 
And I thought, this is the ignorant, arrogant things that we do as Christians to think that we can use Scripture to disqualify. And it doesn't stop at that. It, 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 it never stops at that. It's always some disqualifier. Can you do this and be a Christian? Can you do? And we want the answer to be no, you can't do this and be a Christian. And the answer is, Paul said, all things are permissible, not all things are profitable. You can do any of that that you want. It doesn't benefit you at all, and why would you embrace a lifestyle that moves you further from how your creator created you to live instead of closer to how your creator created you to live? Third and finally is this, and I just wanted to spend a minute on this. Um, walking in grace means dispensing grace is if it doesn't start with you or end with you. Dispensing grace is if it doesn't start. Now, this is probably going to be the most paradoxical part. And I'm going to tell you something a lot of pastors and teachers don't say. I don't know all the answers. Anybody that walks around and they walk with the confidence in their Christianity that they have all the answers, run from them. Right? Versus the person who goes, I'm on a journey discovering the mysteries of God. The Bible says that God's thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. And so I don't know that we'll ever fully, on this side of heaven, understand why God does certain things, says certain things, or doesn't do certain things, because I've, I've got a lot of advice to give him, and he's yet to ask for it. So <laughs> when I get to heaven, I'll go, if you do another creation and a whole other planet, can I? Just a few pointers how I would do it. It's the free will thing, probably not the right move. Um, People are dumb. They're going to do a lot of... Um, but I think I'm right about this. And I would encourage you to dig into the Word and uh, land on my perspective or find another perspective. Um, I think Jesus is okay with us seeing things differently from time to time, right? Um, we can't contribute. Here's the beauty of grace. We can't contribute to it. At the same time, understanding that in order to have received grace, the requirement is that grace can't stop with us. That the nature of grace, we can't be a receiver of it unless we allow grace to move through us, not to us. Does that make sense? So, you couldn't be a receiver of grace unless you took grace under the terms and conditions that grace is meant to work as a current. You're not meant to be a lamp, but rather an outlet that continues to move grace forward. So Jesus asked, or Peter asked Jesus a really important question that gives Jesus the open door and the opportunity to begin talking about the difference between what it looks like to be a law follower and a Christ follower. And this is in uh, uh, Matthew 18, 21. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, when somebody won't stop doing wrong to me, how many times must I forgive them? Seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, you must forgive them more than seven times. You must continue to forgive them even if they do wrong to you 77 times. Right? Jesus just giving sort of a, um, I know there's a lot of people who want to see it 
as seven, because seven is the number of God, six is the number of Satan, and they want to see it as this really holy thing. And maybe I'll get to heaven and Jesus goes, that is why I said that. Um, and I'll be like, oh, I just thought it was, you know, whatever. So I think Peter was probably saying seven times the number of God, and Jesus was like, I don't, I kind of make fun of Peter a lot because he didn't seem all that smart, um, and he was always sticking his foot in his mouth. But I think Peter was the most hungry to know and Jesus used Peter often in the questions that he asked and the things that he did to spring into teaching what the real heart of God was. And he said, you, you can't just, you have to stop seeing yourself as a pool that gets filled with grace. And as you dispense it, eventually you'll give up so much of it that you won't have any left for yourself and it'll dry up. And so you hoard forgiveness and mercy and tenderness and kindness and grace. And that is what the law is, is that there is this limited number, this, this, this quantity of righteousness that any of us can possess. And, and half of Romans and the teaching of the law is that he's, he's, and where we get some of our misunderstanding about how grace and sin work, is he's teaching Jews, listen, Jesus isn't going to keep, if, if you sin, then you have to give a new sacrifice in the law. You have to keep sacrificing. But with Jesus, he's not gonna keep crawling back on the cross for you. There is no other sacrifice. It's just that, it's just the cross, it's over. We can't help ourselves but to see grace as this pool that if we give away forgiveness too much, people are gonna think it's free. People are gonna think you don't have to earn it. People are gonna think you don't have to be really, really sorry to get it. People are going to have, they're going to walk around with the impression that they don't earn your grace. And that is why Jesus wanted us to understand that forgiveness is a current. Instead of seeing us as a pool, we instead see ourselves as a conduit, a pipe, fire hose, better yet a river in which the current is to receive and all a river does is move the water on. The river doesn't decide to choke off and to, to dam itself up and to, I was raised in St. Louis and if you've ever been to St. Louis then you know downtown St. Louis on Laclede's Landing where the river boats are is the old muddy Mississippi. And I'm going to tell you, you don't ever in your craziest moment want to try to swim into the Mississippi. The current is so dangerously swift. The undercurrent is so unbelievably powerful. You'll die within seconds because the force of what moves through there, it's literally, they call it the muddy mist because it's just churning up the churning up everything that's in it. It's brown. It's the nastiest looking river you've ever seen. And it is where all trade happened in the Midwest. It's where people discovered the, the West. It's where everyone moved from point A to point B. And that is what you are in God's grace. To just, you're not there to discern. You're not there to judge. You're not there to restrict. You're not there to control the flow. You are there to just let grace move through you. Because Jesus didn't put requirements on his grace to you, and therefore you cannot put requirements on your grace to others. Listen to what it says 
in Matthew 6, 5, or 6, 19, or 9, whatever it is, you can read it for yourself. <laughs> and I'm sorry for not pausing, giving you more time to say amen. This is a good message. Um, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come. May what you want to happen be done on earth as it is already being done in heaven. And give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins just as we have forgiven those who sin against us. This sounds pretty good. Keep us from sinning when we are tempted. Save us from the evil one. And then Jesus goes on to explain what he means by that. Forgive other people when they sin against you. If you do, your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive the sins of other people, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's tough because that sounds super, super conditional. And it is. Paradoxically. Paradoxically. It is. It's a paradox. And Jesus said he was calling on God. Our prayer should be to call on God everything that naturally should be happening in us. This isn't asking God to do it, but it's really calling out permission give ourselves permission to do. Obviously, God means to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We're not freeing God up to do that, are we? God is our provider. The Bible says over and over and over, he promises provision for us. The Bible says that he's already forgiven us. So in this prayer, we're really releasing ourselves. We're really un, uh, undamming our river. Jesus spells out the paradox and says, there's no way that God can move forgiveness to you because the condition of forgiveness is that it moves through you. I've set it up that way. It's just the nature of how that electricity goes. It's how forceful the river moves that it cannot stop with you. If it stops with you, you're not receiving grace because grace is way too powerful to be held in a pool. It only can flow through rivers. So listen to what it says in Luke 6, 37 and 38. Don't judge others and God won't judge you. Don't condemn others and you will not be condemned. But forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give to others and you will receive. Isn't it interesting at the beginning, it says that you can turn off the spigot of judgment and condemnation. And God will then turn off the spigot of judgment and condemnation to you. But there's a dire warning to not cut off the flow of forgiveness. Because you turn yourself into a pool that cannot receive grace. Grace is conditional on the fact that what receives it understands what it is and allows it to keep going. When we walk in grace, we walk in the river. Ephesians 4.32 says it very simply, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as though Christ has, or just as God ha through Christ has forgiven you. 
you have to walk in grace in the same manner in which Jesus extended grace to you. You have to practice grace in the same way in which Jesus, you have to do that lovingly, tenderheartedly, because if, you ha if you're not doing that, you're not walking in grace. You're walking in some churchy religious thing that looks just enough like grace that you think you're living in grace. The condition isn't that you're sinless. The condition is that you are covered with grace. And you are walking in this... Um, uh, when I was... Uh, I may have told this story before. When I was like 15 or 16, uh, our youth group in St. Louis went on a uh, float trip. I don't... You guys don't do them here. I've noticed not that much. But you get in canoes and you just row for long, long lengths of time, and then you get out, and you're like, that was amazing, and you're just sunburnt, and everybody's mad at each other, and so this is what we did, and we did it on the Merrimack River, which is one of the most dangerous rivers in the nation because of its undertow, and me and the lead pastor's son, who was not allowed to wear shorts on this because shorts were not permitted for him, so this is some of the, you know, kind of religious stuff we do to each other. And um, so the poor guy has short or, uh, jeans on, and it's the middle of a, a Missouri summer. It's humid and sticky hot, and we're out on the river. And he and I are in a canoe, and we go way, way, way ahead of everyone else. And uh, the river splits, and we didn't know which way to go, because um, that's what happens when you get way out ahead of the leader. <laughs> and so we thought, go left. And we went left, and there was a giant dead tree, I mean, this kind of big tree, laying across the river so that you couldn't pass through, and we couldn't turn around because the current was so strong, and it swept us up against the law, turned the boat sideways, and then the boat started rocking because of the current, and the boat flipped, and we both went under, and of course, he has jeans on, and uh, long story short, we were able to get up out of the boat and we were trapped. And the current, which was so strong as to flip our boat, to disable us from being able to turn around and go back, the current, which was dangerous and could have, was the same current in which we turned and saw a man. Came out from nowhere. And a big beard and big husky guy. And he just was like chest high, walking through the river. And we're just staring at him. And he's like, you guys need some help? And we're like, who? What the? <laughs> who are you? We're just, it was amazing to watch someone resist the force of that to the degree that they could do something in it other than be swept up by it. He pulled the boat out with this, felt like superhuman strength, lifted it and set it on the other side, put us in it, walked us, out where the fork met back up with the main channel, set us into the main channel, and turned around and walked away in the river. Right? Crazy. One of those crazy stories where I go, I don't think angels are like bumming around with us all the time, but that dude, that dude was either superhuman or a really cool angel. 
the part I wanted to emphasize was that he did his work in the flow of the river. What was there and could have swept us under, see that's the law and that's condemnation and that's guilt and the trouble we have when we don't interact with grace the way we should. We make it about rules that earn grace. He just walked in the flow of it and the river didn't overtake him and he used it to his advantage and he just did his thing. And that is what we are. We are walking in the river and letting grace flow through us. We don't try and stop it. We don't try and restrict it. We don't make anybody earn it. Walking in grace means you understand your position in grace. You're not the giver of it. You're not the arbiter of it. You're not the controller of it. You're not the rule maker about it. You just go, I'm, I'm here in it with you. Like it's, it's washing off everything I've done in my past and present and my future. And I'm just going to make sure that I try to pull as many people into that river as possible. And that means you've got to stop categorizing people. It means you've got to stop judging people. It means you've got to stop putting people into pockets of rules that you think disqualify them because you and I don't get that permission ever anywhere in Scripture. And you said, well, you know, it does say that we can judge as long as we judge with the same measure. And it absolutely does. And I would encourage you, when you've achieved a sin-free life, I could use your help around here, helping me get my crap together and helping others get their lives together. But until then, it does say that if you find someone in sin, those who are simply more mature, those who have gone further down the river, or been in it longer, help restore people gently and lovingly. It says, lest you get pulled back into sin. Because that's how enticing and inviting sin is. That at any point, we can just keep taking it back on. Again, it doesn't pull you out of the river. It just means that you sort of stop and play with your sin instead of living in the grace that God is pouring out to you. And so, yeah, I, there are passages that you can go, well, it does give us permission to do this, this, and this. And I would say, absolutely, it 100% does. Paul said, I'm not even allowed to judge outsiders, those who aren't Christ followers. That's not our role to judge the world at all. He says, but I can judge those who are inside the church. And this is the same Paul that is giving us all of this on judgment and grace. This is Paul telling us to walk tenderheartedly and loving and mercifully with each other. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and just have a minute for yourself. Have a minute for you and God. Have a minute to just do something with this. If you'd say, um, I've, I'm a follower of Christ, I believe that I'm covered by grace, but I think I misunderstand grace. And I don't, I don't want to be a pool. I don't want to think that I just get filled up and then I've got to protect that and it's, I'm there to manage it. And if I sin, it depletes that. And if I give grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it, I deplete it. And all the weird things that maybe I've been taught or maybe I've just made up on my own, I don't, I don't want to see it that way anymore. I just want to know God's mind and God's heart. I want to be more like my creator. I want to walk more like Jesus and be more like Jesus. That's me. And if that's you, just throw a hand up. And yeah, lots of us are in that boat, pun intended, I suppose. 
God, I don't even know how to pray for us because everything that we've asked for is already present in our life. I suppose that maybe what I'm asking for us is that we would recognize your truth, that all well-meaning people who have been in our lives for so many years, all my in-laws and friends and, and people I grew up in ministry with and people I went to Bible college with and people I went to church with when I was, we've all been having this conversation about how messed up some of our theology, our belief system, our doctrine has been because we have grown up under this oppressive guilt and this new system of law and we've never really truly enjoyed swimming in the grace of God. And if there's anyone here that's wrestling with that same feeling or something similar, <sighs> remind us of what you say in your word, Jesus, when you say that if we follow you, the burden is light and the yoke is easy. And you didn't mean for us to live under that oppressiveness. And so I just, I want to follow you in your shadow and be in the easiness and the light yoke. I want to know what it looks like to be Christ to people and let them see Christ in me and invite as many people into this river of grace as I possibly can before I leave this earth. I would love to see thousands of people with my handprint on their shoulder, just turning them away from religion and judgment and condemnation and rules and turning them towards the grace and mercy of Christ. And that's my prayer for every single person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.